everyone. It's good to see you. It's good to be seen by you. Thank the Lord that we're able to gather um, again in his name to fellowship as we um, worship our Savior, singing of praise, meditation of his word, fellowship of the saints. It's a beautiful thing. Amen to that. Thank you, my brother. And um, I, I, you know what? Before I even kind of um, jump in, it, it may have already been said, but I, I wanted to say a big thank you to all of those who came out and helped with the big clean yesterday. Um, absolutely done a tremendous job. Uh, we were very low on numbers, so we didn't get everything done that we needed to do. But um, we had a, a good crack at it and probably got two-thirds done. Um, and so I think that um, we should really celebrate all of those who came out and gave themselves. I would ask those of them who are here to stand up, but I don't want them to lose their rewards in heaven, you know. <laughs> now, there are certain times when it's necessary to just be really sensitive to the Lord, especially as a pastor, but for all of us. But um, as one who's stepping up to teach and um, with us not currently going through a series, we kind of hit the summer season and things get a, a little bit um, fragmented in terms of coming and going and so on and so forth. Um, there's always that kind of consideration. Okay, we're not in a series, going to share something. Um, you know, what, what should I share? And um, I remember the first time I was in that situation where I was asked to come and share a talk um, on, on anything of my choice. And that was the most agonizing invitation. In fact, I actually ended up turning it down. And I ended up not going because I just couldn't make up my mind what to share. And I remember speaking to a, 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 one of the elders at the church I was at at the time. And um, he gave me some very helpful advice. Um, it didn't pan out very well at the time, but later on it served to be really um, a blessing. He said, you know, remember Peter and John as they came out of the temple in Jerusalem and they saw the, the man begging who was lame. And they looked at him and they said, silver and gold I don't have. But what I do have, I give to you. And, and they reached out to him in Jesus' name, and he was healed. And he said, that's all we can do as um, people seeking to represent the Lord, to share from that which the Lord is, has deposited in us and what he's doing in us. And so as I have kind of held that as a really helpful um, principle, what is the Lord speaking to me about? Where are we at as a people um, Lord, what would you have to say to us? Um, my attention was turned to this topic, um, this matter. And I think it's really pertinent for us because we're people. <laughs> and as people, um, we're inclined to sin apart from the gracious power of God's Spirit at work in us, um, inclining us away from sin and toward the Lord. And there's no doubt that for us, this is an issue that um, is going to be necessary and helpful to address because it affects us all in different ways. And so um, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 9 today. And um, we're going to be looking at a few verses. In fact, we're, yeah, a few verses. We're going to be looking at three verses. Um, don't get happy because I don't think it's going to be short. <laughs> it's um, three verses, but nonetheless, um, it, it, it's been very challenging as I've wrestled with the text and what it means for me and what it means for us. And, and I trust that the Lord would challenge us today on certain levels whilst at the same time encourage us because he's God and that's what he does. And so let's look at Luke 9, 
um, verses 46 to 48, and then I'll pray. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Father God, we thank you so much for the fact that you are our loving Heavenly Father. And you are deeply committed to the plight of your people. We thank you, Lord, because truly we recognize that there is acceptance and safety among the beloved. And Lord, you know, we live in a, in a, in a culture, we live in a, a situation where actually we are often encouraged to see ourselves as above the beloved, better than the beloved. I mean, even just in life, Lord, we see that inclination to self-exaltation just bigging up one's own chest. And yet, Lord, we recognize that you're the equalizer. Don't worry about Edward Woodward or even Denzel's remix. You're the great equalizer, Lord, in that, Lord, you cause us all to have a proper recognition of who we are when we look to you. And that's why we're looking to you today, Lord. Help us speak to our hearts. Move in us, work in us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's no doubt, I think that, you know, over the years, we in the West, um, particularly US slash UK, we've been lied to. Often. You think there's no surprises there. You know, everyone's lying to everyone all of the time. But it's funny how some of these lies find their way into our hearts and lives through the music we listen to. Think about some of the music that you've listened to and you've kind of looked back on it and you just thought to yourself, actually, you know what? That was a madness. You know, that, that, that dream that it was selling me, that picture it was painting, completely unreal. Now... I felt that way as I was preparing and I, and I thought about um, the words of a song from the prophet R. Kelly. <laughs> listen, listen, hold on. Who is, he, who is he a prophet for? Oh, all right then. Come on now. Because everybody's preaching something, isn't it? Rappers, singers, politicians, everybody's preaching an agenda. It's just a matter of whose message is it that they're preaching, whose agenda. And um, I don't even have to go back into, the, into the, the archives before he hit some troubles, got hung out to dry in the media, and kind of you took a change in his music. I don't need to go back into those days. But, you know, he, he kind of began to produce a few real kind of feel-good songs. Um, and... The, and there was one in particular that I was thinking about. It, you could, you could, I could have suggested, you know, I believe I can fly. That's, that's got to be the... I believe... No, 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 no. Let's, let's, keep it, let's keep it in the I can fly. Let's keep it in the I can fly era. The greatest. Yeah. Okay. You know, this, this, and the other one has killed a thousand talent shows, a million talent shows. And um, in the chorus, he says, I'm that star up in the sky. I'm that mountain peak so high. Hey, I made it. Hmm. I'm the world's greatest. I'm the world's greatest, you know. 
Not even the greatest version of me that I could be. I'm the world's greatest. And, and the whole song is that kind of whole feel-good sense of self-esteem building affirmation. And um, I thought about you know, where we're at as a culture and how these kind of messages have sown into the mentality of a generation. Um, there was a talk by a, a guy called Simon Sinek. Some of you may have be familiar. He'd he done a talk about millennials. And he talked about, you know, one of the problems with millennials, you know, he was talking about them in the context of the workplace and how, you know, millennials just find, seem to struggle so hard. They could be in the greatest job in the world, but they're there for two minutes and they want to leave. Um, you know, things just are just not work, never working out for them and so on. And he said, you know, part of the problem is they've just been told that they're so great and they're so wonderful all of their lives to the point where they're never satisfied now. I say R. Kelly's responsible myself. Or the greatest love of all. What is the greatest love of all according to the song? <laughs> Learning to love yourself. And so we've been plagued. And then you add to that the, the culture of, um, you know, back in the day, people used to say that somebody was ghetto fabulous. If they were like known in the community, they had a reputation on the road and so on and so forth. But um, now you've got self-stardom. I mean, forget being ghetto fabulous. You can be world famous on YouTube. Facebook. Insta, trending, Twitter. And so everybody has kind of had not just the messaging, but an experience that affirms this sense that it's all about you. You're the greatest thing since sliced bread. The greatest thing since the invention of the wheel. It's all about you. <clears throat> the reality is that so often we buy into the mentality of the world. Um, even as Christians, it can sometimes be hard to kind of distinguish between what is a harmless sense of encouragement and what can actually be fundamentally detrimental to our lives and walk with the Lord. Yet still... Thankfully, as we look at the text, we recognize that actually there's nothing new under the sun. The disciples were walking with Jesus and an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. And so it's not just a modern phenomenon. It's a human phenomenon. Because just like Adam and Eve, who were inclined from the beginning to put themselves first before God, we are all likewise inclined. God said, you have the whole garden. You have everything at your disposal. There is no limit to what you can have and what you can do apart from this one thing. Only one. One thing. One thing. Fruits of every kind. Animals to, 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 to ramp up and down with, and you know, they were tamed. It's just like, apart from this one thing, and it was just, don't eat the fruit. And you think to yourself, how simple is that? It's not even like they were wanting for food. It's not even that they were lacking in you know, things to keep them occupied or interested or things to... I mean, but this one thing, don't eat the fruit. And that one thing became their focus. Not because of the fruit. It's because of the challenge to their own sovereignty, their own sense of greatness. Why could they not have been satisfied with everything that they were given? Why could they not have been content with what the Lord had provided? 
and just ignored the fruit altogether. Just avoided that part of the garden. Why not? Well, when we look at ourselves and we look at those situations that have undermined our own values and commitment to ourselves, let alone to God, those situations where we don't even keep our promises to ourselves, we can begin to relate to why Adam and Eve couldn't stay away from that fruit. The heart wants what the heart wants because we think we deserve it. I mean, after all, the hair companies say you're worth it. And so we see here this argument among the disciples as to who's the greatest. Now, it's easy for us, and I say this because I'm guilty of having done it, it's easy for us to read over this and think those disciples, look at them, arguing over who's the greatest, how silly that is. And, and we kind of remove ourselves from the equation as if it doesn't, it, it doesn't, oh, of course we know that we're not the greatest. Okay, let me give you um, maybe 10 things as a, a little diagnostic. Do you think that you're the greatest? Now, you might not think you're the greatest in the world sense, like R. Kelly might say, you're the world's greatest. But that wasn't their issue. You see, they were concerned with who was superior among themselves. They were comparing themselves with themselves. They were comparing themselves with those around them, within their immediate company. So when you look at it in those terms, consider these diagnostic indicators, and then begin to evaluate just as to how superior you think you are. Do you find that you're often intolerant towards others? Do you find that you can have a tendency to be ungrateful? Are you ever in a place where actually you can really be quite unteachable? You know enough. How about just wrestling with a constant sense of impatience? Maybe you're somebody who can have a tendency to be rude in your manner towards others and yet feel justified in your mind. I'm just speaking my mind. That's just how I feel. Are you someone who is easily offended at the, the slightest little thing? Are you someone who's easily shamed? It doesn't take much for you to feel the flush of embarrassment. Are you someone who can have a tendency to isolate yourself from others? Not really trying to participate in corporate activities. Rather, in t to keep yourself to yourself. Because you just like your own company more than you do the company of others. <laughs> you see, all of these and more are indicators as to us being in a place of pride and a sense of superiority. You know, you think about it in the context of church, we can often find ourselves in a place where we're thinking that we're better than others. Others are holding back our progress. We consider that the way that things are being done are not being done in the way that I would do it, and so you know what? Can't be bothered, who cares? 
I can't believe that people actually think that way about the Bible. They actually look at God in that fashion. Maybe you feel your theology is better. But you're just a better person. You're morally superior. Maybe you get irked at the way people dress. I mean, you see me come up here in a pair of shorts to preach, and you're just like, that's so unfitting, so unseemly. It could be the way people speak. Economic or academic status. All of these things, when they become issues in our hearts, issues in our minds, even in a way that they're more than just infrequent, that can be indicative of the fact that actually we're having a real issue with pride and we're thinking more of ourselves than we ought to. If we find ourselves in a place where we just complain about stuff and we complain about stuff in such a way that it's never to the person who can actually make a difference or the person that it's most relevant to. But we ensure that everyone else hears our opinion. Here's what we think. Given an inclination, therefore, to gossip and backbiting, rather than honest, loving confrontation or addressing the issue Addressing the person that sinned against you. Addressing the issue that displeases you. See, no one's going to say that we don't have issues that will cause us to feel some kind of displeasure. But if our response to that is to kind of step back and carry on as if we're superior, we're aloof. And not have the love to actually step into the situation and make a difference where it matters, then we're wrestling with issues of pride, of superiority, of greatness. To see yourself as the greatest, you don't have to see yourself as better than everyone in the world. There simply is a sense of superiority over those who are around you. A lack of respect, a lack of consideration, a lack of care. All of these things can indicate that just like the disciples, there is a sense in which we think that we are better than. We isolate ourselves from fellowship. We don't give ourselves to serving. All of these things become indicators that there are issues to be resolved. And the reality is that it's more than just a case of, okay, you know what, I'm going to do better. You see, Jesus recognized the issue was in their hearts. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, that's the thing about the Lord. <laughs> no amount of lip service can impress him. Can't throw him off the scent. Can't you know, throw up a smoke screen. And the Lord knows our hearts. The very thoughts and intents of our hearts. And I just think it's amazing, like it says in Hebrews 4, that the word of God is so powerful that it's living and it's active and it, and it separates, it, it, it creates a distinction between body and soul and spirit and the very thoughts and intents of our hearts. The word of God exposes our hearts. And you see, 
rather than there being a, a sense of mutual cooperation amongst the disciples, there was a fundamental competitiveness. Rather than cooperate considerately, they were competing. And the reality is that we all find ourselves in that place. And so the thing for us to do is to come to the Lord and say, Lord, my heart isn't right. I remember when, um, back in the early days at Calvary Chapel, Westminster, um, when we were there with, with Pastor Brian um, teaching and just experiencing for the first time what it's like to kind of just go through Scripture and hear Scripture just dealt with contextually. And I remember him saying, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so when we say things that are wrong, we ought not to excuse ourselves. But we ought to just say, Lord, forgive me because my heart isn't right. And I remember at that time thinking to myself, hold on a second. That's contrary to what I've been taught as a Christian. You see, as a Christian, one who's been born again, well, my heart's been renewed. So why or how would I say that my heart isn't right? And I struggled, and it was a simple statement. I mean, you could, you could you know, bear witness. That was pretty much what he said, and it wasn't that complicated, right? But it troubled me. I wrestled with it. I was just like, how am I going to say to the Lord that my heart isn't right? Isn't that even to deny his work of regeneration in my heart? The fact that I've been born again by the Spirit of God. And then I remembered when the scripture speaks of heart, it speaks of the heart in a holistic sense. And in some occasions, the emphasis is on that of the spirit. When it speaks about the heart, the innermost parts of our being, the core of who we are. Sometimes the emphasis is on our souls being our mind, will, and emotions. And there's no doubt that our spirits have been regenerated once we put faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. We've been born again and our spirit person, our spirit being has been renewed. And yet our souls are being renewed on an ongoing basis. This is reflected by Romans 12, um, chapter 1, Romans 12 verses 1 and 2, where it talks about not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so when we go from being like the world to being like Christ, which is God's great agenda, that we would be like Jesus. And that experience in the reality, in the here and now, happens as we are renewed by God's word. You know, some people have, have made a profession of faith in Jesus, you've submitted your life to him, and you lament over the fact that there's no change. And you just feel like you're no different to the person that you were before. You wonder if the Bible's actually true. And if Jesus is actually real. And his spirit actually makes a difference. And yet, that might be because we've made a false profession of faith. And we've not genuinely submitted to our, our hearts in repentant faith. But it can also be because we're actually not applying ourselves to grow in the grace of God by being renewed through the word of God. And so if we're not, gonna be, if we're not being renewed by the word of God, then we're going to feel very much like the old man, the old person. Not, not the old man, him indoors. <laughs> we're not going to feel new if we're not being renewed. I was at community group the other day, and um, it, was a, it was a blessing. And it's, it's always a blessing to just see just fruitfulness in people's lives, see growth in people's lives. 
And it was a real simple thing that nobody else in the room probably would have, have even acknowledged, recognized, or thought of. But this person quoted from uh, a sermon that they'd been listening to um, that had really kind of um, connected with them. And it had relevance in the conversation that we were having. And it was just such a simple thing, but I was just so encouraged that this person was inclined to be given to the word of God outside of the context of a Sunday, outside of the context of having to, you know, get your head down for a community group. But there was just a, a healthy appetite for the word. And you know what? We're spoiled. I mean, if we are absolutely lavished with such luxuries. I mean, we have fingertip access to every translation of scripture, original languages. We have, I, I don't know if any of you are familiar with iTunes U. You can go on there and do a, a, a degree for free, sitting at your computer, listening on your, on your, on your iPhone in theology. I mean, we are lavished with the luxury of God's word. So, amen. <laughs> lavished. Men and women of God from all over the world sharing from the riches of scripture. We just have to press play. We can even pause and rewind. <laughs> and yet, we can be so scripturally impoverished. Mm. And so I was encouraged at that. There's a necessity for us to be renewed. Because when we see these attitudes in our hearts, and when we see these off-key feelings coming to the surface, when we say these off-key things and engage with people with off-key attitudes. It's indicative of the fact that our hearts are not right. It's not just a matter of doing better. But we need to present our hearts to the Lord and say, Lord, help me, forgive me, my heart is not right. And then we need to apply the word of God like medicine to our hearts that it would reconfigure and reconstruct us from the inside out. Not just being hearers of the word, but doers. So Jesus brings a child into the equation. He brings a child into the equation. And he says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Now, at first, I kind of, kind of, I kind of got a sense of what the Lord was saying, but I didn't really understand how this really connected to their great struggle. Because on this occasion, He didn't say whoever becomes as this little child. He said that on other occasions. On this occasion, He didn't say that. He didn't say whoever becomes as this little child. He said, whoever receives this child in my name. Now, we understand culturally there's a lot that we're kind of indoctrinated with. We're taught children should be seen and not heard. At least that was definitely the case when I was growing up. Don't involve yourself in big people talking. You know your place. And so there can be a general disregard for the, the, the value of a child, at least in terms of their opinion. Who's really going to take the opinion of a child seriously? I mean, they're a child, for goodness sake. And the Jews, they had their own kind of spin on that because in Jewish culture, 
a child under the age of 12 was not regarded as one who could be taught. They were one who could not be taught, but at the same time, more importantly, they could not be listened to, they could not be heard. And so therefore, to spend time with them was a waste of time. I'm sure we've all got that one person in our lives that we try and avoid. We try and spend as little time with as possible. Some of you looking at me like you're, you're, you're more holy than that. There's that one person that we're happy to say hi and bye to. Because we just feel like if we spend too much time with them, it's going to be long. And I'm, I'm just not going to get those minutes back. No, that, that, it, that's just 10 minutes of my life that's gone. There's, yeah, there's no rollover, no buyback. And this is what Jesus is challenging. He says, whoever receives this child in my name, child regarded as unimportant, lowly, insignificant. I mean, when we're having functions, when we're considering making an impression, you know, the, the saying goes, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And so our status is kind of inflated by the people that we can surround ourselves with. And so if we've got people around us of recognition, of, who are noteworthy, and you know, we, we can, you know, we've got certain followers on our Twitter and certain people on our Instas and certain people that we keep company with and we're seen in pictures with and da-da-da-da, then we get a certain level of kudos from that. And we know we do. Children will seldom ever come into that equation. Whoever receives this child in my name, to receive from a child is an act of true humility. For a child to come in the name of the Lord is to suggest that that child is going to come and bring something to us. In fact, speak to us in some way of Christ. Coming in the Lord's name is to come as one who is representing the Lord. The fact that the Lord would even suggest that, that would be an approach he would take to send a child in his name would have been astounding. You mean you're going to send an unreliable impressionable child to represent you. And yet the psalmist said, out of the mouths of babes, the Lord God has perfected praise. And so there's even something that we're able to learn from God through children. Are you humble enough to learn from children? You see, the reality is that the way we treat the lowly really is indicative of where our sense of superiority lies. The child is representative of the lowly, the overlooked, the outcast, the unimportant, the unvalued. That's what the child represents. And do we find ourselves in a place where we don't even have time for such people, let alone are willing to hear from and learn from them? 
I remember when I was at um, working with Pastor Robert, St. Joseph's Academy as it was up the road, and there was a cleaner there, and um, we used to have a, a classroom in the basement in, we, down in the dungeon. And um, this cleaner, it was always messy. The stairs going down into, into the classroom was always messy. And the, the, the room often got messy. And we saw this cleaner every day. And the pupils used to actually, I mean, they're kids. And so you kind of think, you're not really going to expect them to be considerate and compassionate and so on. Um, they used to make his life a misery. And so I remember one day just thinking, you know, I see this guy all the time and I've never really taken the time to even find out who he is. Like. And so we got talking and as we were talking, I was just humbled. Because there's this brother, I mean, um, I think he was from Nigeria and he was very diligent in his work always ensuring that, you know, he was very conscientious, taking care of every aspect of his work as a cleaner. There was never a time when after he cleaned, I felt like he didn't do a good job. And yet, when I spoke to him, I found out that he was in the final stages of being fully qualified as an accountant. I mean, not even part qualified. For those of you who know about accountancy, you've got all of these stages you've got to jump through to get fully. He was in the final stages of being fully qualified as an accountant. And I was just like, I was humbled. Not just because, oh, I, I misread this guy. But I was humbled by the fact that he was just so committed to his job as a cleaner even though, quote-unquote, it was so beneath him. That dealt with my heart. Now, the reality is that as somebody who had recently started running my own business, I could have been asking him for help. Much-needed help. They're killing me with the tax, brother, help me. And he would have known exactly what to do. A service that we were paying other people for. And yet, one so humble, so lowly, so seemingly unimportant, was yet someone who had so much to offer, to me even, just on a personal level, but life. You see, the reality is that we can be very ignorant and inconsiderate as it relates to those that are viewed as unimportant. And that exposes our sense of superiority. Are we willing to receive a child? Are we willing to even learn from a child? Are we willing to learn from those who would be regarded as unimportant? And yet Jesus goes on to say, he who is least among you all is the one who is greatest. The one who is least among you and so we recognize there's an issue in our hearts. There's an, there is a sense in which, actually, we can often find ourselves in a place where we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. We find ourselves in a place where we feel superior. We don't have time for others. We're not trying to hear from others because we already know what's best. We become tetchy, frustrated when it feels like other people are slowing our progress, getting in our way. 
not doing what we want, the way that we want. People not being worthy of our presence, not even worthy of our help or of our time. And yet, the least among us is the greatest. And furthermore, let me correct that. The least among us is the one who is great. Because even in that statement, Jesus eliminates the sense of competition. It's not about who is the greatest among you. It's not about who is better than the rest. But fundamentally, who is going to be all that you can be? All that God intended for you to be. So how do we become the least? How do we come become the least? Fundamentally, it's all wrapped up in humility. And that sounds simple, but what does it really look like to be humble? This is a quote from C.S. Lewis. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Very often it's that self-flagellation, beating ourselves up, having to put ourselves down. I'm no good, I'm terrible. That's not humility in a biblical sense. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. It's thinking of yourself less. Just not thinking about yourself. Whether you're great or not. In that, we begin to find ourselves in a place where we're on the path to true humility. Now, Jesus said, the least among you is the one who is great. (laughs) Think about who was saying this. Who was the least among them? Jesus. Now, it might seem like a kind of contradiction because we know his true identity. You know, we, we, we know what lies beneath the robes, like Superman beneath his suit. But Jesus, even in his presence among them, even in the act of him being there, was demonstrating extreme humility. We're talking about the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Son of God, the one who spoke all things into existence and holds all things together because he is the word of God's power. And yet he was among men. That's true humility that he would not even make a visit for a day. Just appear, come on the scene. But Jesus was born in a manger, lived as a child, as a dependent, walked through his life under the authority of parents and teachers, All the while, he had greater authority in them and deeper knowledge. Every day, every day of Jesus' life was a picture of extreme humility. Every single day. 
And so truly the least among them was Jesus, who was demonstrating his greatness. And, you know, the mad thing is that they couldn't see that. I mean, the fact that they're even having this argument amongst themselves in the presence of greatness. You're in the presence of greatness. And you're going to be there arguing, who's the greatest among us? I mean, the answer's simple, Jesus. Why are we even having this conversation? When we look at the context of the chapter, Luke bears this out. We see Jesus send out the apostles at the beginning of the chapter, verses 1 to 6. He sends them out. They don't go on their own agenda. We see Jesus feed the 5,000, verses 10 to 17. Peter even confesses Jesus as the Christ, verses 18 to 20. Verses 28 to 36, it couldn't be hidden anymore. His glory burst out the seams of his being. He was transfigured before their very eyes. He demonstrates his power over unclean spirits in verses 37 to 43. And yet, in verse 46, after all of that demonstration of power, there is still a question as to who's the greatest. You see, they were not rightly regarding Jesus for who he was. And as a result, they were not rightly regarding themselves for who they were. When we lose sight of who Jesus is, we begin to view ourselves wrongly. And so if you want a humility hack, and you want the shortcut, because YouTube's full of life hacks, right? You want a humility hack, and you want to get to the heart of the matter, as far as it, it relates to superiority in your own heart and mind, look to Jesus and recognize him as being the greatest. He who we are all subservient to, we are all to be submitted to, bowed down before. And in that, we will begin to adopt the posture of one who is truly humble. When we regard Jesus for who he is. And it can be a challenge because for so many of us, we've been used to living in a place of fear. We don't like the vulnerability of being humble. We want to assert ourselves. We want to assert our opinion. We don't want people to walk all over us. We don't want people to take us for a fool. We don't want to lose control of situations. And so we're not prepared to make ourselves vulnerable in the way that humility requires. And yet, we see Twice in this chapter, Jesus predicts his crucifixion. In verse 21, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He predicted his own death. And likewise, in verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now the next verse tells us in 45, they didn't understand this. But Jesus made himself as vulnerable as a person could be. He allowed himself to be killed. 
And when we appreciate that he done this for you and for me, he, he made himself the most vulnerable so that we could be secure in him. You see, it's not just that Jesus made himself vulnerable so we have to follow his example. It's more than that. Jesus made himself vulnerable and he died in our place for all of our pride, for all of our superiority over others, for all of our disobedience and rebellion, even against God. And he paid the penalty for all of those things with his life on our behalf. And having done that, he was raised from the dead. He conquered every single one of those things. Every sin that gets us down, Jesus has conquered. Every sin that could ever be committed against us, Jesus has conquered. He has done this for you and for me. And he has accepted us into his family. And so therefore, we're able to be vulnerable in the way that humility requires. Knowing that we're accepted by God. And when we feel tempted to fill the vacancy of lordship, we're able to look to Jesus and recognize that it's been filled already. Jesus never died and left none of us Lord. It is not our will be done. Jesus said, if you receive the lowly, even that of a child, you receive me. And if you receive me, you receive the most high. My father who is in heaven. We all know what it would be the, the, for the significance of having a member of the royal family publicize the fact that they were coming to South London and they were coming to your house specifically and intentionally. Regardless of what you think of royalty, their status in society is such that everybody would be wondering, why are they coming to their house? Why are they coming to your house? What's so special about you? You see, in true humility, we are demonstrating our relationship with the Most High. And that relationship confers greatness upon us. It places it on us that even the Most High would care to associate with you, with me. And yet this is the case through Christ. In Luke 14, 11, Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. We don't need to strive for our own recognition. We don't need to strive for the last word. We don't have to stress to be recognized and respected. We're able to be humble and trust the Lord and know that in his own time and in his own way, he will let his light in us be seen. Philippians 2, 3 says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is the path of true greatness. This is what humility really looks like. When we're able to 
consider others over ourselves. Count others more significant than ourselves. And that has to be worked out practically. It's not just an idea we keep in mind. But what does that look like in our relationships? The way we commit time to be with others, the way we are committed to serve others. You see, in a context of indifference among ourselves, where there can be a real whatever type of attitude, which is evidenced in the way that we demonstrate our commitment to one another and even spending time with one another or serving one another. We need to consider our sense of superiority and submitting that to Christ, who is the greatest and who has brought us in and to whom we owe everything. I'm going to ask the team to come back. I saw a um, great quote that I'll end with. Exercise humility. Keep in mind that there's always someone superior than you. Even a child can teach you something new. Let's stand. Father God, we recognize that our hearts are exposed before you. We recognize, Lord, that we are so often so guilty of being superior. We recognize that we are so often guilty of thinking that we are better. So often we are competitive in our thinking. Not even in a way that we feel like we are trying to be better than someone else, but just thinking we are better than someone else. Lord, forgive us. We ask that you would help us, Lord, as we submit our hearts to you. And that we would experience real heart change. That as we have heard your word, as the light of your word has entered the recesses of our hearts, Lord, I pray that you would help us not to be resistant. Help us, Lord, not to be proud and unteachable, even in this moment, thinking that this doesn't apply to me. But that, Lord, we would humble ourselves. And like the psalmist, we would say, search me, O Lord. Try me and see if there be any wicked way within me. And that, Lord, you would help us to look to Christ, who being the greatest, took on the form even of sinful man. He came and walked among us, just like us. He who is the creator of the universe and of all that exists, he was even accused of sin as he spent time with the sinners. His reputation was maligned and slandered. His character was misjudged because he dared to care for and be considerate of the lowly. Lord, may we be lowly. 
may we recognize that actually, you know, even when we're accused, the accusations are right, even if they're not specifically. Because we know our own tendency, we know our own inclination towards sin. And even when we're exhorted, we, we know exactly who we are and are able to give no consideration to that. Because, Lord, we know that there is nothing good in us. This is what your word tells us. Apart from you, sin corrupts us to the core. And yet, Lord, you're the redeemer who has renewed us by the power of your spirit. And you've accepted us, brought us into your family and given us your name. We're grateful. We're grateful to you. We're grateful for you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.